It had been 400 years since God had spoken directly to the Israelites. Then, one day, God sent an angel to a girl named Mary, who was engaged to a man named Joseph. The angel told Mary that she would soon become pregnant and give birth to a son named Jesus. God would give him the throne of his ancestor David, and his kingdom would never end. But Mary was a virgin, and this confused her. So the angel told her it would be by God's power that she became pregnant. When Mary's fiance Joseph heard about this, he decided he would quietly end the engagement. But an angel visited Joseph as well telling him not to be afraid and that Jesus would save people from their sins. So Joseph and Mary decided to get married. Soon after, they traveled to the town of Bethlehem. Because so many other people were in town, there was no place for them to stay. While they were there, Mary gave birth to her son, wrapped him in cloths and laid him in the manger. There were shepherds living in the fields nearby. While they were watching their sheep, an angel appeared to them, announcing that a boy had been born in Bethlehem. This boy, said the angel, was the Messiah, the king that the Israelites had been waiting for. So the shepherds left their sheep and raced to Bethlehem, finding Mary and Joseph and Jesus. The shepherds praised God for their new king, during this time, the country of Rome controlled all of Israel. After hearing about Jesus' birth, a group of magicians and astrologers came to Herod, a governor working for the Roman Empire. They claimed that they had seen a star in the sky, telling them that the king of the Israelites, now called Jews, had been born. This news really upset Herod. When they arrived in Bethlehem and met Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, they felt great joy. Herod was furious and commanded that all boys in Bethlehem who were two years old and younger be killed. But God had already warned Joseph, who by that time had moved his family to Egypt to hide. Later, after King Herod died, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus moved back to Israel to a small town named Nazareth. They stayed in Nazareth for years, raising Jesus. When he was 12, they traveled to Jerusalem for a festival. When the festival ended, Joseph and Mary left for home with a large group of people. But Jesus stayed behind without them knowing. When they realized he was missing, they went back to Jerusalem and found Jesus sitting in the temple, listening to the teachers and asking them questions. His parents were upset and couldn't understand why he had stayed behind. Jesus told them, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Joseph and Mary didn't know what he meant. They did not yet fully understand the importance of who Jesus was and all he would do. Well, good morning. I want to send a special greeting to those of you who are worshiping with us for the, the first time this morning. We are so glad that you are here. My great hope, my great prayer is that you have already experienced the hospitality of the Crosspoint family. But even more than that is my great hope, my great prayer that you experience the presence of our Lord here in our midst this morning. 
If you are visiting with us this morning for the first time, whether you are online or you are in person, you picked a great morning to join us. We are on a journey together through the story. We are reading the Bible together this year. We began in September in the book of Genesis, and we will finish in May in the book of Revelation. We are going coast to coast through God's word. We began in creation. We began in creation with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And we are steadily making our way through God's story with his people. We're going coast to coast through time. And this morning we've come to the Continental Divide. That moment in history that divides the Old Testament from the New Testament. B.C. from A.D. The prophets and the priests from Jesus and the apostles. Today might be called the hinge point in history because today we celebrate the birth of Christ. And so may I be the first one to say to you, Merry Christmas, friends. <laughs> you know, it seems a little strange to read the Christmas story, the birth of Christ in March rather than in December. Usually we read about Mary and Joseph in the manger during that season of the year when our houses are covered with lights, where the mall is playing Christmas music we're all trying to be a little bit nicer to each other. But it's March. It's, it's not December, right? It is not Christmas season. It's, it's almost tax season, right? We are closer to tax season than we are to Christmas season. It is not that we're not singing jingle bells anymore. We are not celebrating Christmas anymore. If you are a student, you are probably preparing for midterms. And you're already thinking about summer vacation. Am I right, ladies? Yeah. We are moving on in that story, right? We are moving forward in our year. It's, it's March. It's, it's not December. It's in between that Christmas season and that, that summer vacation. And maybe that feels a little bit ordinary to you. Nothing special. Just ordinary. Maybe your life feels a little bit ordinary today also. Maybe you look at other people's lives and you picture them in a, a perpetual Christmas vacation or a perpetual summer vacation. And then you look at your own life and you say, it's just ordinary. Maybe your life is marked by paying the bills, mowing the grass, taking the kids to school. You look at your life and it's, it just feels ordinary. Maybe you're like me and you realized years ago Nobody's going to call up and ask you to pose for a picture for the cover of a magazine. Most of us will never receive a phone call from someone that the world considers important. Now, if that resonates with you, if you hear that and you say, that sounds like my life, then congratulations, because you qualify for a part in the Christmas story. Because long before there were bells and Christmas carols and lights on houses, there was a little town called Bethlehem, an ordinary little town called Bethlehem. But God did something extraordinary there, right? Through ordinary people in an ordinary town, God brought extraordinary hope. And this story is told about in one of the most extraordinary passages in all of Scripture. It's told about in the Gospel of John in chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open with me. I'm going to read the story of Jesus coming from John chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. 
In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh through Christ. John wrote these words during the last decades of the first century. Depending upon which biblical scholar is most accurate, Somewhere between 30 and 60 years have passed since the last time John saw Jesus. And it wouldn't be that long until John saw Jesus again in heaven. The Gospel of John and the book of Revelation were John's last earthly assignments. And the Gospel of John is is John's account of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already written their accounts. They each had their primary focus. They each had their primary audience. John was a Jewish man. He was living in a Greek city, and he had a heart for the Gentiles. He began to speak about Jesus, and he realized that the story of Jesus needed to be told again. It needed to be told again. It needed to be tailored to a non-Jewish audience. Now, that early church had grown up within the Jewish culture. Their founding members were all Jews. Jesus was a Jew who during his lifetime only briefly set foot outside of Israel. Jesus spent almost his entire life in Israel amongst the Jews. That early church began amongst the Jews and it reflected Jewish thought. But then came Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit was poured out over those early believers. The apostles became the equivalent of of cross-cultural geniuses. They were suddenly able to speak languages they had never studied. They were able to understand cultures they had never visited. And as a result, that early Christian movement left Jerusalem and it spread like wildfire in places like Asia Minor. One early historian estimated that within 30 years, non-Jewish Christians outnumbered Jewish Christians 100,000 to one. John was a missionary. He was a missionary to that non-Jewish audience and he was living in a Greek city of Ephesus. He began to tell the story of Jesus. He pastored the church in Ephesus. And he quickly realized that what mattered to the Jew didn't matter to the Greek. They weren't all that concerned with Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, which spoke about the genealogy of Jesus. They weren't all that concerned about John the Baptist like Mark's gospel was. John quickly realized that he needed to start somewhere else in order to reach the Greek. So the question was, how does he tell the Christmas story to a non-Jewish audience in a way that the Greek can understand? Well, God gave John the answer. God gave John the word. Literally, God gave John the word, word. Where Matthew and Luke began with ancestry, 
Mark began with history. John began with that phrase, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the logos. That's the Greek word for word. Now, Greeks, and especially Ephesian philosophers, were famous for saying you can't step into the same river twice. By the time you put that second foot in, it's a completely different river, different water that's flowing past, and it's always flowing. They say that that's a picture of life, that life is always changing. But then they are quick to say also that behind it all, behind everything is a word. Behind it all is logos. Behind it all is a reason, is, is an understanding. Behind it all is the word. That's their word for, logos is their word for word. They talk about somebody who, who speaks and who manages and, and who makes things happen. Life may seem chaotic, and yet behind it all is logos. Then verse 3, John says, all things were made through him. All things were made not by him, but through him. God, Jesus didn't fashion things out of raw materials. Jesus made the world out of nothing. And John tells us that, that Jesus was with God at the beginning that he was the source of light, that he was the source of life. And then in verse 14, John tells us that the word became flesh. If you understand Greek philosophy, they believe that behind everything was a being, was a mind, was a reason, was a word. And then John told them that that word became a human being. Now the other gospels tell us the same thing. They just come at it from a different angle, talking about shepherds and angels and a manger and revealing that great name, the name Emmanuel. Matthew chapter 1, we are told, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, John and Matthew are telling the same story. They're just coming at it from two different angles, but they meet in one truth. The truth that God is with us. That Jesus came to be the with us God. That he wasn't content to be above us. No, Jesus wanted to be the with us God. Now this is amazing, right? The, the one who created everything became part of the creation. It's like the, the artist who becomes the paint on his own paint palette. It's like the potter who becomes the clay on his own pottery wheel. The word became flesh. Jesus became an embryo in Mary's, Mary's womb. He was God with us. I want you to stop and think about that for a moment. Some of you have heard that truth your whole life. Some of you have, have heard and understood that truth your whole life. But I want you to think about it for just a moment right now, as if you've never heard it before. The Word became flesh. God became a human being. Now, why is that important? What's the big deal about Jesus coming? Why does this message today matter to us tomorrow? Well, I want to explain it like this. There was a six-year-old girl who was getting ready for first grade. Now, this six-year-old girl was ready for first grade, but her dad wasn't ready for her to, to start first grade. First day of school, he walks with her to school. They're holding hands as they walk to school. They're holding hands as they stand on the school playground waiting for the bell to ring. There are other parents there with their kids as well. And when the bell rings, the teacher calls out, it's time to come to class. Now, the dad didn't want to let go of his daughter's hand. 
There were other parents there who, who felt the same way, but this dad didn't let go of his daughter's hand. The teacher noticed what was going on, and she repeated herself, this time looking right at the dad. It's time to come to class, and it's time for you to go. The dad let go of his daughter's hand and watched as she disappeared into the jaws of higher education. But the dad didn't leave. He lingered. He loitered. If this was a story from today, this dad would be in trouble because in a few minutes he headed down the hallway and he began looking for his daughter's class. When he came to his daughter's classroom, he looked through the window and he, he saw her there sitting at her desk. After a few minutes, the daughter saw him. The daughter saw him looking. After a few minutes, the daughter saw him looking through the window. And her chin began to quiver. And the tears began to fill in her eyes. And pretty soon the teacher noticed what was going on. The teacher stepped in between them and motioned there was time for the dad to leave. Now I know what some of you are thinking. You were thinking, this is a story about me. Well, I'm not going to tell you. But as I headed down the hallway, <laughs> a thought occurred to me. I wish I could become a first grade boy. I wish I could sit in the desk next to her. I wish I could keep the same characteristics, the, the wisdom and the experiences of an adult, but shrink down into the body of a little first grade boy. The first time that my daughter got scared or frustrated, I could reach over and I could pat her on the shoulder and say, it's okay. It's dad. I'm here in disguise. I'm here to help you. I could be the dad in the next desk. That's what Jesus did. God put on human flesh and entered into the classroom of our world. He wrapped himself up in human form he didn't become a light in a far-off place. He didn't become a, a star millions of miles away. He became like the dad in the next desk. And he was so human that we could touch him. And he was so mighty that he could heal with a touch. He was so available to us that we could walk beside him. And he was so powerful that he literally walked on water. Jesus was so normal in his appearance that he could blend in the crowd for 30 years and nobody noticed him. And yet he was so profound. And he changed the world in such a way that here we are this morning talking about him 2,000 years later. This is the most important, most amazing moment in, in history. When the word, the Lagos, became flesh and took his place and dwelt among us. So that we can know that he knows how we feel. The Apostle Paul put it this way. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Everything in God is in Christ. Jesus was the firstborn of all of creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Take a look at that list. Heaven and earth, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. Jesus created everything. He created you and he created me. He created the horse and the seahorse. He created the mountain and the ocean. He created the bird and the fish. He created the hair on your arm 
and the heartbeat in the baby. Everything that is can be traced back to him. And yet for a time, he put on human flesh. He was born in a manger. He was laid in a food trough. All the frailties that you and I deal with, he dealt with also. And the question is why? Why did he do it? Why did he become poor? Well, maybe because he knew that some of us would be poor. Can you imagine the message that that sends to the homeless person on the streets? Can you imagine the, the message that sends to the poor widow living in that village in Kenya? It says, God is with you. Or think about the scandal that Jesus was born into. His mother Mary was, was not married and, and she was pregnant. Imagine the whispered conversations that happened every time she entered into the room. The clear message is, if someone rejects you, God is still with you. He will never turn his back on you. God is with us everywhere we go. He is with you at work. He's with you as you eat. He's with you as you sleep. He's with you everywhere you go. He is with you always. Then a second thing. The Word became flesh for a purpose. The Word became flesh for a purpose. We have spent the last five months walking through the Old Testament. And again and again, we have been reminded of God's faithfulness to his people. At the same time, his people's unfaithfulness to him. Over and over again, God's people have turned away and chased after other things. But the righteousness of God has compelled him to pursue, to send warnings, inviting his people back into that covenant relationship with him. Much the same way that you would pursue an unfaithful spouse and, and plead with them to live out their wedding vows. God revealed himself to his people again and again through deliverance from enemies, from, through prophets like Amos and Hosea and Elijah and, and, Hosea and, and Isaiah, through miraculous events like the ten plagues, Elijah's three-year drought, the, the showdown on Mount Carmel. And yet none of it was enough to keep Israel on target. About 850 years after God gave the law to Moses, Judah was sent into captivity. The, the people who had been given that promised land as inheritance were now being expelled from that promised land by their own doing and with God's permission. They were exiled into foreign nations, cast out of the land of their inheritance, and they were destitute. They had every possible advantage to become holy and to live up to that high calling. They had been redeemed. They had seen the miraculous events and acts of God. They had his written word. They had the covenant of the law. They had the sacrificial system to make payment for their sins. And yet their sin nature reigned mightier within them than all of those things put together. If Israel couldn't cut it with all of those advantages, what hope was there for anyone else? If the covenant of the law wasn't enough, then what would be? Well, obviously, something else was needed. In Hebrews chapter 7, we read, The old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And then in the next chapter, Hebrews 8, If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. You see, Israel had failed over and over again. And yet the solution was not to lower the standard. God could not do that and still be God. And so the question is, how could God make his work more personal, more intimate, 
to every believer? How could God move towards his creation and express to him, express to them who he is? The old covenant was not the final solution. You see, the sin problem is a heart problem. And so instead of an external law, God is making it possible for his actual nature to become part of his people by sending his Holy Spirit to live within us. God's Holy Spirit lives within us. Every time I think about that, I am absolutely blown away. But how does God make this happen? Well, a few weeks ago, we read from the book of Isaiah about the suffering servant, right? The suffering servant who would come and remove that need for continual sacrifices, who would inaugurate a new intimacy between God and his people, who would still require death as payment for sin, but now he himself would shed the blood that previously was required by another. He would also ordain a new kind of Passover meal where the blood that was spread over the doorposts of homes would be replaced by blood spread over a different kind of wooden post. During what was arguably the darkest time in the history of Israel, God gives a clear window into something so unexpected, so out of the box, so unpredictable and startling that we can hardly handle it. God never fails to give hope. God the Father sent his son Jesus Christ, the suffering servant who heals us by his wounds. And to a people, both the Old Testament people and us today, people who cannot, cannot heal themselves, who cannot save themselves, God reveals a story of a, a new promise, a new heart, and sins that will never again be remembered. Because the word became flesh and died on that cross and rose from that grave, we can be made right with God. The world changed the day the word became flesh through Jesus. And the world continues to change every time the word becomes flesh through you and me. The first incarnation happened 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem when Jesus came. And the second incarnation is happening right now through the church. What God did then... God is doing now through the church. Because the church, you and me, are called the body of Christ. By what we do, by what we say, we communicate to the world what God is like. We are his hands and feet. And so the word becomes flesh every time we choose to live the way Jesus would live if he were at our home, if he were in our place of employment, if he were in our neighborhood or at our school. Every time you choose to, to forgive someone who's difficult to forgive, the word becomes flesh. Every time you extend a word of, of encouragement to someone, the word becomes flesh. Every time you choose to withhold judgment until you have all the facts, the word is becoming flesh. Every time you care for the needy, the word becomes flesh. It's a tremendous joy, isn't it? but it's also a tremendous responsibility. It's a very high calling. And sometimes I ask myself, ah, what kind of impact am I having? What kind of message am I sending to the people in my life? If I, if I were to move out of my neighborhood, would my neighbors even notice? That's a question that I ask sometimes about Crosspoint. Where are those points of blessing that we are to our neighbors? What kind of impact are we having in our community? And if Crosspoint ceased to exist, would our community notice? That's a hard question. 
But it's an important question because it becomes very easy to get into that rut of just doing church, of just doing life, of just going through the motion and missing out on our high calling to represent Christ to the people in our neighborhood and across the street and across the world. With how we speak and with what we do, we are painting a picture for the world of what God is like. And I don't know about you, but I want the picture I'm painting of God to be of a God who loves deeply, a God who gives generously, a God who forgives endlessly. There's a story that I sometimes think about in connection with this kind of thing. It's, it's a story that comes out of the aftermath of World War II. World War II had devastated Europe. Cities were in rubble. Farms were destroyed. Children were orphaned. And the, the American military stayed behind to help with that rebuilding process. And one morning there was a soldier who was headed back to base camp. As he turned the corner in his Jeep, he noticed a building up ahead, and he noticed what looked like a, a young boy standing in front of it. As he got closer, he noticed that the building was, was a bakery. It was a, a, a shop making donuts. And this little boy had his nose up to the window. He's watching the baker do his, his work. The soldier pulled over his Jeep. He got out and went and stood next to the boy. He said, son, would you like some of those? The little boy turned to him and said, I sure would, mister. Soldier went inside and he bought a dozen donuts. He put them in a bag and he brought them out. He said, these are for you, son. And he turned and headed back to his Jeep. As, as he's walking back to the Jeep, he felt a tug on his pant leg. And he turned, it was this boy. He was looking up at him. He said, mister, are you God? Are you God? When we love, when we forgive, when we give generously, when we serve sacrificially, when we live as Jesus would live if he were in our shoes, the word becomes flesh through you and me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for coming to this earth and, and wrapping yourself up in flesh that we might see God. Thank you for the work that you did on the cross, the work that is complete in what you did, that we can live with that blessed assurance of knowing that we are yours, that you are ours, that you have done the work that makes us right with God. Let us live into that, Lord. Let us live lives of great gratitude, knowing that you get us that you understand the lives that we live, and that you are powerful enough to heal all of our wounds, the wounds of today and the wounds that have a potential of, of transforming eternity. Thank you that we are safe with you. Lord, right now I want to lift up Ted Terpstra, who is going to be going through open-heart surgery tomorrow. And I, Lord, Lord, I pray that you would be there in that operating room, that you would be guiding and directing the hands of the surgeon, that you would give him the eyes to see what needs to be done and the wisdom and the skill to do it well. We pray that you would protect Ted, that you would strengthen him, that you would cause there to be no complications, that the surgery would go as planned, that healing would be brought through this surgery, and that Ted would be here in worship with us one day again very soon. 
Lord, we trust you. You have proven yourself faithful through the years. We trust you with this. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.